All right. Well, okay. Where was I? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Point number one. <laughs> Point number one. Um, an epistle for, for the exiles. Well, Jeremiah 29, as we started to look at it, this, this, this little section um, contains the contents and the circumstance for the writing of a letter. And Jeremiah is in, is in Jerusalem, we are told, and he's writing this letter to be sent from Jerusalem to leaders in exile, to the elders in exile, to priests, prophets, um, it says, and all of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken away into Babylon. Now, I know we reference the exile quite a bit, but it is worth noting just a little bit of the details regarding that event. Um, back in about 587 BC, 586, one of the two, that was the time when the southern tribe, the tribe of Judah, um, was conquered by the Babylonians, and many of the people were taken away into, cap, in, into captivity. Now, when one foreign power would come in and conquer a, a city, they would typically destroy the city. They'd put the city to the torch. Um, and then several citizens, several people from that city, if they, weren't, if, if they didn't die in the conflict, they would be taken away, carted off and dispersed amongst the empire so that they couldn't uh, maintain a hold on any distinct um, aspect of their culture or, and, and, and to utterly, utterly destroy their power. What they also did when a city was conquered is that they would most often, if, they didn't, if, the, if the existing rulers weren't killed outright, well, the people of nobility, the rulers, the royal court, they would certainly all be, be carried off and sent away as well, just from the mere, just to eliminate any possibility that the, that the um, existing rulers would be able to, uh, to fight back and to reclaim the city. And that is certainly the case for what happened here. Um, the rightful king of Israel has been taken away, along with several priests, prophets, and others. Um, they've been taken away to Babylon, and in their place, um, as is often the case once again, a puppet ruler is set up by the conquering nation. Puppet rulers are those men who, um, who, swear, an orth, uh, who swear an oath to a foreign invader, and they're propped up as regents to kind of rule in place of, um, in place of that conquering nation. And to their own people, uh, they, are, they are traitors. This isn't the first time these kind of rulers in Israel pop up in the Bible either. In the time of Jesus during the New Testament um, era, we have reference, repeated references to these, to these kings that go by the name of Herod, King Herod. And it's the very same, same idea. King Herod was, was like a puppet ruler. He was Jewish, but he was set up, propped up, and his authority came from the Roman government. Um, and so that's what has happened in Jerusalem. The rightful nobility have been taken into exile, but there's another king that's been set up by the name of Zedekiah. He's been set up by Nebuchadnezzar and is there in Jerusalem ruling um, during the time of, of the writing of this letter. And so we're told these details there in verse 3 where it has all those, all those weird names that I'm not going to read again, where Jeremiah says, hey, I'm writing you this letter uh, and I'm sending it to Babylon and this is coming, under, and, and this is coming from those who are working for um, for King Zedekiah. So there's nothing underhanded going, going on here. These are letters sent to Babylon out in the open, um, and so there's no, there's no secrecy here, which lends to the reliability and the veracity of, of the contents. 
Well, what is the purpose of, this, of the writing of this letter? Well, it's very simple. Jeremiah is writing to the exiles to tell them what to expect during their time away. He gives them instruction, things like how to live. Um, he tells them when, you know, if and when they're going to ever return. He gives them details, specifics on how long they are to wait. And he also addresses the thorny issue of can they do anything to leave the exile ahead of time? Can they accelerate the schedule? What can, you know, he addresses that question. You know, can, they, can they muster up, whether it's a revolution or some sort, of, some sort of act of obedience, can they do anything to speed along God's process of, re- of restoring the people? In essence, what this letter has for us, very clear, um, obviously, is that he prepares the people for their time as living as exiles and pilgrims. God's people, uh, the people of Judah, are living among a foreign nation as, as exiles. And what's fascinating about this particular little piece here is how similar it is to a New Testament epistle, because the format, the intent, the shape of it is, it is very, very um, similar. We have the Word of God delivered by one who speaks on God's behalf, delivered in the form of this, of this letter. Obviously, it's sent to God's people, and it's sent to people who are outside of the land of promise. And so he, and he tells them, just as maybe Paul or Peter, as we read, would tell the people, how do they conduct themselves during this prolonged time of waiting? Um, he gives direction to what to do with the time that they're given. And specifically for our, for our purposes this morning, he gives them clear instruction on how to relate to the other people and the cultures uh, and, the, and, and the government that they find themselves a part of. So all of that is very, is, is very helpful for us as Christians living, living today. Well, if that's just a brief setup of this, of this um, epistle that's written to the exiles, let's go ahead and dive into some of the content and look at point number two now. Uh, wisdom for welfare. Wisdom for welfare. The letter begins in this way. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I, have, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The letter opens with this profound insight, and it is making no, it, it pulls no, punch in, no punches regarding the authority that this letter is supposed to carry. Thus says the Lord, says the prophet. And you can take what is going to be said here to the bank. This is, this is God's um, dictated speech in one sense. He tells the people that the first thing they ought to prioritize themselves with is the seeking of their own welfare. He tells the people of God to seek the welfare, the well-being of the people of God. He tells them, in essence, you're in exile, um, and in one sense, it is important for you to establish a new sense of normalcy. You're going to be there for a while. Prosper. In, in that new land that you find yourselves. He tells them to do very simple, practical things. He tells them to take up their vocations, um, to get to work building houses for themselves, plant gardens, eat the produce of those, of those gardens. He tells them to, to settle in. Um, he esteems the idea of, of not just their vocations, 
though, but he also then tells them to, to carry on living, to get, to get on with the process of being fruitful and multiplying in verse 6. He tells the people, take up wives uh, and have sons and daughters. Give your sons and daughters in, in marriage and multiply there. Make sure you don't decrease. That even though circumstances are, are, are dire and the people are in exile, he tells them to continue uh, living as the people of God are intended to live. Carry on. Live well, the prophet says. Make sure that you and your people, um, that, the, that the entire community of the people um, of God take root and that you grow even though you are being planted in a strange and foreign land. And once again, it is, it is important to note that there is this Genesis language going on there. They are to, to be fruitful and to multiply, uh, even though they are not in the land of promise. Nevertheless, they are to carry that on. Be healthy and be strong. Establish this strong community. Um, and obviously it should be... Uh, it's, it's by, by way of implication and good and necessary consequence that as they live as God's people, then they also do carry on and pass on the faith. Um, it's not just about for the people of Israel um, in exile. It's not just about them uh, producing more offspring, but that, that comes along with the covenantal obligation to love the Lord your God, and to obey him, to follow his statutes, even as you live in a strange land. Don't forget that the Lord is your God. And don't forget the promises that he's made to you and to your children and to your children's children. What's interesting, though, in this letter is that he isn't just concerned, even the, so what the, the primary concern is God's people. But he also doesn't stop there. He tells them to seek their own welfare, but that the way in which they're supposed to seek their welfare is not in isolation. He says, do not decrease, obviously, but seek the welfare of not just yourselves, but the city that I've sent you to, um, where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. They are to seek out and work not just for their own blessings, but they're also instructed to seek out um, and work for, actively work for the common good. And even though they're going to this strained nation who certainly uh, worship false gods, they're told to pray to the Lord on behalf of that, of that place, on behalf of those people. They're going into the land and they're going into this land where the Lord is not known and they are sure to encounter all sorts of idolatries, uncleanliness. They're going to face all sorts of, of challenges. And nevertheless, though, even though that's the case, and they are going to stick out like a sore thumb. They're instructed to care for themselves, but to also seek the prosperity of all people um, and the place in which they find themselves. Now, the motivation is also listed there in verse 7, which would be very helpful for us as we continue through this morning. It says that for in its welfare, speaking of the city that the Lord is sending them, in its welfare, you will find your welfare which is fascinating. Um, all the things that would be involved with loving their neighbor and seeking the good of the city they find themselves in, well, in the end, it's only going to help the welfare of, 
of them as a people. It's going to make their time in a strange place uh, bearable and, and enable them to do what God has instructed them, to take up their vocations, to have children, to pass on the faith. That the best thing that can happen to the people while they're in exile is for the place that they find themselves in to be stable um, and for them to work towards that stability uh, to help contribute to the common good of that area so that it will improve their own welfare. Things for these people have certainly gone ill. Um, at this time in Israel's history, part of, their, part of their time in exile does come for them um, as a time of curse. And yet, even though that's the case, they're called to live before the Lord their God. And they're warned in a particular way, at least up to this point, against any sort of um, isolationism or any kind of fatalism regarding their time there in that place. They're told, like they're warned against two things. Like, yes, they're, they're to establish their own community and to build up that community and to pass on the faith, but they're not supposed to do that off on their own, um, that they are to be involved and engaged in the place uh, that they live amongst foreign peoples. But they're also, and also kind of the vision of the life that they're supposed to lead, uh, it also guards them against any sort of fatalism or being sour or just throwing their hands up and giving up entirely. He tells them to know, continue living, uh, live unto the Lord, and do it before men sort of rejects common ideas that you may run into uh, today. Those who are completely fatalistic, maybe their, their notion is that, that, that everything is going to burn anyways, so why contribute at all uh, to society and to the common good? Or those who are really concerned with, with preserving a distinct uh, Christian community and culture, um, but yet choose to do so completely divorced from and unengaged from the rest of the world and their duties and obligations. Um, to the common good. Both of those are warned against here. The Lord says to, care, to not be anxious, carry on, settle in, um, and be prepared to live for the good of all people. Live well. Seek the welfare of all, he says. But then he also turns the page in verse um, in verse 8, in a surprising direction. He tells them, live well, seek the welfare of all, but while you do so, don't get too comfortable. <laughs> like, don't put all your hopes in the place that you're living in, but rather, as you're doing these things, and as you are sincerely living well in the place you find yourselves, you need to remember you must wait for the Lord's restoration. You have to wait upon God and his timing and his deliverance. How do we get that from what's going on in verse 8? Well, in the telling the exiles to carry on, um, they're not supposed to lose sight of their hope in God. On the contrary, they're there to be fruitful and to multiply, and they're supposed to build and grow and grow. Don't stop growing in great anticipation that at some point a larger host of Israels that went into exile are going to return to the land. And the Lord has promised that, that he's going to reverse their fortunes. We get that 
um, I mentioned or, or made reference to one of the more famous verses, verse 11. Um, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The particular hope that he has in mind here is the hope of return, uh, the hope of restoration from exile, of deliverance from this time of exile. Jeremiah reassures the people that this is going to happen. But there's a catch. That it's going to happen on God's timing and the way in which he dictates. And that the people are not just um, to obey that, but they're warned against being deceived uh, to follow anyone else's voice on the matter. um, The letter speaks of, of... these 70 years, a time that is fixed, that have to be completed for their time in Babylon. And then it's only after that that the Lord is going to deliver them. And so during that time that is fixed, that is set by God, the people are not to seek out any shortcuts. They're not, gonna, they're, they're not to try and accelerate God's plan. They're not to take up any agenda to try and force God's hand to make him move quicker. But they are to wait and live well And while they wait, hope in God and stay ready. That's what's going on in verse 8. When he says, don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Don't listen to to them or the dreams they dream. He's warning them against, this is what God says on the matter. Don't don't listen to someone who's going to come after the fact and tell you to take these steps or do this thing or follow this plan and get back to the land quicker. Or to have any other posture amongst the nation than the one that he described of living at peace with people, seeking their good, and investing uh, in, in the people of God, seeking your own people's welfare. Be cautious, Jeremiah says. Um, live well and upright, but trust that God will be the one at the end of the day to bring you home and to reverse your fortunes. It's this balance of life as a stranger, um, living well as a stranger, and yet at the same time anticipating God and God alone for deliverance that are held in tension here in this, in this letter. And Calvin, uh, commenting on the book of Jeremiah, describes the balance in, the, in, in this letter in this way. He says, God commanded the captives to build houses in Chaldea to plant vineyards and also to marry wives and to beget children as though they were at home. It was not indeed God's purpose that they should set their hearts on Chaldea. On the contrary, they were ever to think of their return. But until the end of those 70 years, it was God's will that they should continue quiet and not attempt this or that, but carry on in the business of life as though they were in their own country. As to their hope, then it was God's will that their minds should be in a state of suspense until that time of deliverance. At first view, I'll continue. It's it's, it's a long quote. We'll keep going because I like it. At first view, uh, these two things seemed inconsistent, that the Jews were to live 70 years as though they were the natives of the place and that their habitations were not to be changed, and yet that they were ever to look forward to a return. Their hope, as I have just reserved, was to remain in suspense in order that they might not be agitated with discontent nor be led away by some violent feeling 
but that they might pass their time as to bear their exile in such a way as to please God. For there was a sure hope of return, provided they look forward according to God's will to the end of that 70 years. It's a very succinct and um, clear and hopefully delightful look at, at the life of these people during um, exile, maybe a, maybe a bit more hopeful than we're used to hearing when we consider um, exile life. That even though they didn't find them, even though they were displaced and they didn't find themselves in their physical land, they were to continue to carry on. Uh, and in the end, it didn't change the obedience that, that God was due and the shape of their lives, what it was supposed to look like. And as we examine Jeremiah 29, then, hopefully, the parallels to our own experience and to what life is like for us should just jump off of the page for us. But maybe I'll try to make some of those more, more explicit here as we turn to point number three. Uh, point number three, which is our final point this morning, is enduring priorities for all pilgrims. The enduring priorities for all pilgrims. Um, the exile of the people of Israel is... One of those times in the Bible where the people of God find themselves living among, among the nations. And you see it occur a few different, a few different times and in, 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 in a few different ways. There's a close connection between this time of the exiles with maybe uh, the time of the patriarchs, where this idea of being of Abraham and his, and his, uh, his sons sojourning, that there is a very tight connection there between the two. And for the New Testament... When parallels are drawn between old and new, the two that are most drawn on are, this, are these ideas of being sojourners and exiles. The people of God in the New Testament, um, as illuminated by writers like Paul and, and, and Peter, display this, remarking, this remarkable similarity between the church now and the people of God under both Exile and during their time of sojourning um, under Abraham. Very clearly, we are told in the New Testament that Christ, upon his coming um, through his life, his, his death on a cross, that he has purchased with his own blood a people, that he has purchased for himself a people. And the same type of language regarding this people, this kingdom people that is applied uh, or that is given to Israel, is applied to the church in places like 1 Peter 2 that we read, that this people that Christ has constituted are, according to Peter, a, a chosen race, that we are a, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, this people for his own possession. But it's a people comprised of um, not just ethnic Israelites, but all peoples, those who were not once God's people, but now people, well, but now those whom God is calling his people. We are a people who, like those times, um, are God's chosen people, his chosen race. Uh, we form, as citizens of the kingdom, this own, this particular uh, distinct identity. Um, but we find ourselves, as in, both, as in those other cases, living far away from our homeland, that we belong somewhere else. Um, not just our citizenship, but our very heart, our longings, our desires, our for home, 
another place that we seek to be restored to. And the instructions given in 1 Peter that we read are remarkably similar to the instructions in Jeremiah in terms of the way in which we are to conduct ourselves and live as God's people, as, uh, as sojourners who are exiled in a foreign land. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh with way, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Watch over our souls. Seek our well-being and our, and our prosperity as a people. Fulfill our vocations and honor the Lord. Be fruitful and multiply as God's people as the church goes forth uh, making disciples of all peoples. Conduct ourselves well and honorably uh, before other people. Seek the common good. Seek their welfare, but not just for their sake. Uh, Seek their welfare. Seek the common good because then that will also bring glory to God, as as it says in verse 12, in the day of visitation. Um, And it will help us, it will help the church go about its business and its mission um, in a way that is free. We are not permitted um, here in these passages or as God's people today, just like them, before us to retreat, or like to do things like retreat into the world or to be fatalistic and to not care um, about common concerns. There's a call to holiness and taking care of our own, a building up of the saints. Um, this is live as people who are free in verse 16, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. We live as servants of God, um, but even that living doesn't come at the expense of our neighbors. Um, We want to honor everyone, as it says in verse 17. But notice there how it goes back and forth. It it, it intermingles these obligations between loving the brotherhood and honoring God, which should be, you know, major major priorities for Christians, but then also to honor everyone and to honor um, the emperor even. Despite, or despite some claims to the contrary, what happens in this world is important. Um, and we can't shield ourselves at times from our obligation to seek the welfare of the city. We should pray for their well-being. Seek to honor all whom we can and exalt and elevate our Savior, Christ, while we do it. At the same time, though, we also we, we do this and we don't lose our, the sight of our motivation for where our hope truly does lie. That, our, that in order to do that well, in order to love your neighbors, and in order to love uh, the city, and in order to love uh, rulers, even unjust rulers, the only way you can possibly do that is if you fix your ultimate hopes in that heavenly home that we are all yearning to, to return to. Our eyes have to be fixed in that, um, on that heavenly homeland. We have to truly um, embody what the book of Hebrews talks about when it, when it describes the hall of faith. And it, and it says that all of them have this desire for a better country, a heavenly one. That that should characterize our approach uh, to life 
both within the church and our engagement with the world outside. In our eagerness for the great arrival of that new creation where we will dwell with Christ, we have to exercise caution also um, with the notion that we are going to hasten God's timing, just like in the book of, of Jeremiah, through any measures that we take into our own hands, whether that be our collective sanctity as a church um, or our eagerness to, um, to transform world governments, to affect change, to even lead revolts and riots and revolutions. But just as in the book of Jeremiah, the Lord has fixed a set time for our restoration, for the consummation of all things. Now, the book of Jeremiah is convenient because it gives you the exact number of years, so you have something to look forward to, whereas the New Testament explicitly says over and over, even the words of Christ himself, uh, like in Matthew 24, that Olivet Discourse, he explicitly says, no one knows the hour. It's set, um, it's sure, it's determined, but you don't have a clock or a calendar or a countdown for it. No one knows but the Father. Um, and if that's the case, well, what are we to do? Well, we live as pilgrims, um, pilgrims who are preparing for the coming of Christ, people who treat it as though it's always imminent, it can come at any time, people who long for it sincerely, and yet for as long as we find ourselves here, we commit ourselves to living well, bearing children, taking up our vocations, serving our neighbor, working for the common good, seeking the welfare or the city sincerely, but not because we think that it's going to, um, it's, or not because we think that, that there's a formula to follow that will hasten the day for the Lord's arrival, but we contribute and we seek the welfare of the city because it's the right thing to do and God instructed us to do it. We do it for the city's sake or for the common good's sake, knowing that as the common good prospers, so too God's people will prosper and our welfare will be improved as well. This idea of living as pilgrims um, has been one of the most fundamental and foundational parts of the, of the Reformation, even from its earliest days. Um, when you consider things like the Augsburg Confession, which was a joint Lutheran and Reformed document um, that Calvin signed, at least in the first version, and then the Lutherans got upset and then they revised it in, in the second edition. One of the things that remained from first to second edition that all, the, that all the Reformed who subscribed to it affirmed was this idea of pilgrim theology and, as a, and, and was a rejection of the notion that there would be, um, that we would seek a golden age before the day of judgment um, and that that would hasten the final consummation of God's kingdom. It's not just in the Augsburg either. It's even in other places like, like the Second Helvetica, or Second Helvetica, that's a, that's a, a font. Uh, the <laughs> uh, Second Helvetic Confession, which was adopted by most of, uh, most of the French church, the Swiss church, uh, even the Scottish Reformer church in the 1500s. It says this, it says that we further condemn dreams that there will be a golden age on earth before the day of judgment. And that the pious, having subdued all their godless enemies, will possess all the kingdoms of the earth. 
for evangelical truth in Matthew uh, chapter 24 and 25 and Luke chapter 18 and apostolic teaching in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 2 Timothy 3 and 4, that these all present something quite different. Um, so to be uh, reformed has always included this, this notion of, once again, of, of pilgrim theology. So we'll just end with um, with these things. And that's just this, this simple idea. That as we work for the good of our people, and we work for the good of all people, receive all good things with joy and gladness. Like, rejoice uh, when good things happen in our community of faith, when, when people are redeemed, when people are, are changed and delivered. And rejoice when there are good outcomes out in the world, when you make peace with your neighbors, and when when the world stage, whether it be small local concerns or large-scale or large scale political things happen um, and that are good, rejoice when, and receive them with gladness and give thanks, give thanks to God. Let those things give us just but a taste of the world that is to come and help it further strengthen our desire for that day. But when things don't work out uh, and they don't go our way, um, both in church and in family and in governments and in all things. We'll take solace and consolation in that reality that those things are not our final hope. Um, that our, our true hope rests with Christ and his resurrection. And this fundamental idea uh, is summarized by C.S. Lewis when he says this. He says, in the truest sense, Christian pilgrims have the best of both worlds. We have joy whenever the world reminds us of the next, and we take solace whenever it does not. May that be the way we go about in the world um, from this day forward. Let's pray.